0: the Javier Marchetto podcast, where thought leaders connect to share their stories. Check out JavierMorquecho.com for professional development, coaching, and inspiration. I'm Javier Morquecho, your host for the day. We're joined today by David B. Vleet, BHA, MBA, and the current CEO of Tibercio Vasquez Health Center Incorporated. It's a nonprofit community health organization serving nearly 15,000 clients in Southern Alameda County in California and has an annual operating budget of approximately 35 million. Prior to joining Tibercio Vasquez, he served as the CEO of Central Texas Community Health Centers Incorporated, managing 22 delivery sites and over 500 employees. He also serves as a board member for a number of organizations. David has over 20 years of experience in practice management and health services administration. First, hi David, welcome, thank you for being here.
1: Javier, hi, thank you so much for having me, I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you, and so let's start out by talking about your uh, educational background. You started college at Shenandoah University studying theater, but then switched to George Mason University shortly after to to pursue Latin American studies. Can you tell us about this?
1: I did, you know, and I like to frame my education in in a way that, um, I think is easy for a lot of people to understand is I, I took a break and finished my, both my degrees as an adult. So I got my first two years taken care of as a theater major, thought I wanted to be an actor and, uh, at some point realized that that might not exactly be the way I should go. Although I, I was okay at it. I uh, decided then at, at the two year mark to, to leave college and go see the world. And uh, I did that and I went to Mexico and I can give you, and we'll give you more detail, I think, as we talk about that um, later, but I went off and spent some time in Mexico to learn Spanish and to um, have a, you know, a cultural, multicultural experience, I guess today they call it a gap year, I probably should have taken one of those. But after I um, had a couple years out in the real world, I uh, ultimately reapplied and, and went to pursue and finish my undergraduate degree and later my master, my MBA.
0: And so, um, how was the experience of going from one degree to another degree? And because um, I'm thinking of someone in the audience who may be in a similar situation uh, back then, what advice would you give to someone who's on a, who wants to pinpoint their education or career path? Um, and they could be very well in um, different fields of study, but how do they choose what to do?
1: Well, I think this is a, a really great question, um, Javier. I think we expect a lot in our culture, um, Believe believe it or not, maybe a little too much. To expect that an 18, 19 year old is going to have a complete vision for their, the rest of their life and know exactly what they're going to do. There are a few that do that, and a few career fields that require that kind of um, decision making early on. But it seems to me that as you develop as a young person and your brain develops and your interests uh, develop, that you become interested in different areas and potentially different fields of study. And so I think that, you know, in my case, my interest definitely developed as I uh, as I was growing more mature and as I decided that maybe acting wasn't something that was practical for me as I went out into the real world. As I mentioned, it began to shape um, what I wanted to do. And so by the time I went back to school, I had been in Latin America and um, really felt that my calling as a as a human being was to work uh, with uh, Latinos and Spanish speakers. But more importantly, I knew that I had an international bent to what my career ultimately would end up doing. So as I rematriculated back into school, I had a much clearer vision when I went back in 1988. So I would have been maybe 26 years old and I chose Latin American studies at that point to begin to get an understanding of the, the, the Latin America world, Latin America, and the politics therein, and that course of study really did help me with that in terms of my understanding of,
0: of ultimately the area that I would work in. So when you were in Latin America, what about being in that area uh, gave you the interest to pursue healthcare? I was struck
1: by the poverty. Frankly, I was in Reynosa, Mexico, in northern Mexico um, on two occasions. My first time there, I was really just getting my bearings to learn, to learn the language. And I went through a language program and a study program. And then I returned as an adult in 1990. Um, and I had a much clearer vision at that point as to what I wanted to do. I had already begun to, my heart was beginning to tell me through the 80s, about doing a project or developing a project that would bring healthcare to people who don't have access to care. So when I returned in 1990, I went through a program and traveled through a number of areas in Mexico with a family physician and a team, and we did some medical outreach. It was there, it really clicked for me. And in fact, while I was in Mexico, I was thinking, should I go back, when I get back to the United States, should I go to medical school or should should I pursue more of an administrative career. And so I went through a decision making process while I was there and and again I know we'll cover this uh, as well but I took a break from being a sort of a partner in insurance brokerage. I was definitely ready to make a decision about what I wanted to do as a younger man and as I looked at medicine I realized I don't really like bones. I don't really like broken bones. I don't like blood. So I might not be the kind of person that would be best suited to sit in an exam room day in and day out. So it was at that point I decided I would use my uh, early skills in administration to develop a product that would deliver healthcare largely to at that point in time to mar- migrant workers uh, in Florida. That was that's where I was I was based, and I applied to Florida Atlantic University at that time. I was accepted into the Bachelor of Health Administration program.
0: Oh, nice. And so you did mention you worked in insurance. Um, can you talk about that experience and what you learned uh, in insurance that may have helped you later on? I sure can. You know,
1: um, as I mentioned, I, I took that break, and so I, w- I didn't have a degree. And insurance was and is a business back in those days, and I think that it still is. Where maybe a baccalaureate degree isn't absolutely necessary in order to have a um a full-fledged career of course we now know that uh you know we want to pursue those degrees i feel because we don't want people to tell us we can't do something right um they also of course add to the entire part of who you know aspect of who we are but i became a, a an insurance underwriter meaning that i basically two things I sold insurance policies for commercial properties and then I became an in-office person where I was underwriting commercial properties and that work um, was really foundational for me in terms of how I organized myself and organized um, uh, how I thought about business but it also gave me a trade I was able as a customer service rep I was able to manage a book of commercial accounts and I was able to, I got paid for that, obviously. when I went back to school, I was able to do that part-time work. So it, it, it equipped me and allowed me
0: to have a trade that I actually really enjoyed and, 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 and I needed it. And so you said you did go back to school at Florida Atlantic University, study health service administration. Um, when you chose health, health uh, services, um, what was it that, was your motivation for you to stick with that field?
1: Well, first of all, at that point, I was really convinced I wanted to do healthcare, and I was. I also had this vision for a mobile clinic, and I figured if I was gonna ask people for money to help grant fund this, I probably ha- ought to have the right credentials. But if we backtracked to, to the early 90s, um, the health administration degree was relatively new, um, right? These days, the master's in health administration is rather common. It's a very good degree. It's a strong degree that you can layer on top of a number of undergraduate degrees, and it prepares you for work in the health in the health field. That point in time, uh, the bachelor of uh, health administration was a little was a little less uncommon. But I really wanted to gain an understanding of what was out there in terms of I didn't have any experience hands on experience and health care other than having done a little bit of support in the um, group health insurance area when I was in the insurance business. But I didn't really understand how managed care work, worked. I heard about capitation. I heard lots of terms and I didn't understand it. So when I went back to school, I was um, I was introduced to, and of course, the, the early 1990s is a lot different than it is today, the healthcare care scene. And it was there that I got a really kind of a good background, a rigorous background in a variety of disciplines, including statistics, of course, finance. Um, I had some social science uh, uh, courses that were really uh, important. There was just a good emphasis in the program I went to around critical thinking, and that that really prepared me both for my career. I think it also gave me an edge um, in, in the marketplace as I began to look at what I wanted to do full-time in the healthcare program. And not to um, fast forward too much, but I'd like to remind particularly young people today, internships are still a great way for people to get to know you and to um, develop some acumen in an area you're interested in. We have summer internship, uh, limited interns here at our organization. I did an internship for my, cats, my capstone project, project and that really exposed me to the practical workings in healthcare and exposed me to, to potential uh, uh, hirers, people that would hire me. So that was an important part. Even as at that point I was a young a young man with a family, uh, the internship was critical to my next steps.
0: So what was the internship and uh, what did what did you do? Um, I did an internship with
1: a health plan in South Florida, near Miami, called at that point, in and, and those days, Physician Corporation of America, now defunct. Um, it later became FPA Medical Management. But I essentially um, did um, community outreach and did a, a project that talked about something that was actually new back in those days, which is very common now, called uh, managed, Medicaid Managed Care. Uh, planning. So, in the early '90s, there there it wasn't as common for Medicaid to be um, managed, a medi- a local Medicaid program to be managed by a private Medicare. Uh, sorry, a private uh, health plan that was unusual in those days. Now we have a variety of uh, Medicaid managed care plans. So, I did a paper that explored uh, that what it meant and what the Potential for that market was and that was a capstone project that I
0: worked on and so after graduation Did you continue working at that organization and or what what did you do after graduation? Yeah, I was picked
1: up actually as a result of that project by the sister company This was the health plan and they owned and operated um, a number of clinics Medicaid clinics that were uh, located largely in pretty low-income areas so after I finished that project um, a gentleman that I met through the course of my work uh, gave me my first shot and hired me to um, to manage a small Medicaid clinic in Pompano Beach Florida and uh, I went in with my uh, tie on and my shirt tucked in and I had never managed a single human being in my life uh, directly didn't know much about human resources I walked into what I called a hood it was a tough neighborhood and uh, began um, my career as a medical practice manager. And My first two doctors, who I'm one of whom I'm very friendly still with today, I had I worked with a pediatrician and a family practice doctor, and I had to learn how to run a clinic. And that's where I got my uh, my medical practice chops, as I as I call them. Um, during that initial experience, as I rose to the ranks, I was given more clinics to operate. To the point that I became a regional administrator. At one point, I had some 13 uh, individual health clinics um, under my purview.
0: Yeah, and so this was your first managerial experience, you say. And sure uh, was. so, how do you describe that transition of being someone who's an individual contributor to now managing people and managing an organization? Scary.
1: Um, you know, all the schooling in the world doesn't doesn't teach you how to manage people and understand you know, the, the, the rigors of managing a a medical practice. Um, I think in those days, particularly, um, understanding human resources and understanding the the do's and the don'ts, I used to characterize, uh, it as, you know, a good manager learns how to stay out of trouble with HR, meaning how to directly deal with employees, coach, counsel, terminate, hire. All of those skills are uh, really important. This is why we encourage folks that want to become managers, we give them their name. If they have a title that's manager, we want them to manage human beings and have that experience so they can go through the process of progressive discipline and all the things in managing individuals that that become part of ultimately having a number of people perhaps under one's supervision.
0: And what do you feel you were unprepared for in that rule, you know I didn't re- you know
1: managing people there's an art and a science to it, and in a corporate setting uh, you've really got to understand how to bring people along but also deal with the issues that they bring with they they bring with them um, I would say that i was I was dealing in a in an environment where some of the employees were prone to, let's call them shenanigans. And uh, um, I had no experience in how to directly deal with those shenanigans or those antics. So I fortunately had a good mentor who really gave me strong teaching on how to do HR. I feel like if I was going to start off, let's just say a 26, 27 year old who's never managed anyone, a good background on how to do good HR, how to document, how to counsel uh, employees, how to terminate in the interviewing skills, dealing with the day to day. I start off with four employees. I ultimately have had up to 600 employees. It's those early days I still look to uh, those fundamentals. And I tell my my executives here, I, I don't, because of my experience there, I don't have much tolerance for skipping steps. You know, you really can't do uh, a D and E if you haven't done A, B, and C, particularly when it comes to HR, as it will always come back on you if you're not thorough and you don't make sure you cross T's and dot I's. I think in the early days, being process-oriented is a very, very good discipline for the young manager.
0: And uh, so you mentioned a lot of good points, uh, mentorship, and then just another idea that came across is, Now that you've gone through the experience of being a manager and being a leader, what do you think are the important first trainings that you can give someone uh, in their first managerial position? Uh, You mentioned good HR and being thorough, but are there other um, trainings or programs that you can provide someone who's just starting out as a first-time manager? Well, I, I think HR is a good jumping point. If you're managing people
1: um, to start, you know, they say that most people have the skill set to do the job that they're in. Now, that isn't always true. And you, you quickly find out when someone doesn't it doesn't work out. They don't have the what I call chops. chop. I'm a musician. So we talk about, you know, music in terms of your ability to play your instruments very much the same becomes very apparent. Um, but given you have the fundamentals, then uh, a lot of it really is about fit it's about personality. Um, it, it, some of it. Um, so I think that understanding the principles of HR are re- really important. You know, it, depending on your industry and in healthcare and healthcare delivery, um, you know, we, we have a way that we do things, particularly in the outpatient setting. Those skills are codified. There are bodies of knowledge. You can get certified through the uh, various associations like the management, the medical group management association, MGMA, um, all of these organizations in my particular, my particular field can certify you and verify that you've got the skill set and the knowledge to do your job. But past that, I would go back Javier to what I talked about, about in in terms of how you deal with people and how you, uh, um, how you manage process and bring people through a process. And, And in many cases, Learning to be a compassionate um, manager is really important. Compassion, understanding, and that nice mix of compassion and oftentimes discipline.
0: And you also touch upon you had a really good mentor. Um, can you talk about that experience? How did you come across this person and how did the relationship develop? and what were the roles and responsibilities of you as the mentee and him as or her as a mentor
1: well i, I haven't spoken to him in years and i think hopefully i'll pass this link to him but my uh, i'll give a shout out to my first manager his name was pedro font and pedro was um in the military he was fresh out of the military when i first met him and so he he was pretty tough but he had that really excellent mix where he was able to draw talent out of people, but he, was, but he was rather, he was direct, but he was really clear about steps and what was next and what you could expect from him. He also had a very clear hierarchical um, sort of view of the world because he was in the military and perhaps in an in industry, some industries were not quite as hierarchical as he may have been. But even though he was a little heavier heavy, heavier handed in that area, it taught me a little bit uh, more about organizational structure and the roles that, um, you know, the role that you play as a manager and your responsibilities um, in, in that organization. So Pedro was a really excellent um, mentor to me. Um, he was, and I feel he was really a brilliant people manager and I was able to watch him you know, as I like to say in music, because I play jazz and blues, I play jazz very, you know, on an intermediate basis. I'm still learning. I play blues pretty pretty well, I think. But uh, you can't build a cabinet unless you watch a cabinet maker and you see the nuance about the beveling, how you put the glass in, how you stain, how you put the knobs on, right? I think there's a lot of analogy there as it relates to how you do your work as a manager. When you have someone to watch and to emulate that's really strong. You know, you you can pick up those skills and, and employ those.
0: And as a mentor, would you go to him for questions? Um, how did you interact with him or was it mostly watching and modeling his behavior?
1: I'm really thankful that,
0: again, this is only maybe
1: 1993, 94. I'm really grateful that he, was on me like glue I mean he stuck to me like I mean he also was a younger manager he's probably only a few years older than, than me if he was at all I don't know but he'd been in the organization um, longer than I had and he was really proving himself and so how I uh, worked and and turned out I guess you'd say was a reflection on him so he discipled me I think you'd say he really. St- he really invested in me and had a reason to, um, you know, my issues, my failures would be directly reflected on him. The organization I worked for there in the Miami area was very hierarchical in its nature. So, uh, that mattered to him. So I was very fortunate that he, he had a great deal of oversight and we interacted a lot. It really was a great mentorship. I miss that guy. I need to reach out to him.
0: Yeah. He's doing. All right. Thank you. And, um, Okay, so we'll go back to your story. You said that you started out with one clinic, then you started increasing responsibility to another clinic, and you eventually became regional administrator of this location, correct?
1: Yeah, for the company.
0: So, you know, it became apparent.
1: To me, it became apparent once I got uh, my bearings and I was in the job that this was for me. And I started with with good guidance from from Pedro, I, I began to understand and get get a feel for how to do this, and I think that it was uh, evident to the, the the folks that owned the company and and to my manager that I uh, was uh, able to handle more than I had. So they added additional clinics to my uh, group, and I managed. So these were ultimately wholly owned health centers by this company, I eventually took a transfer from South Florida to Orlando, Florida, where I um, ended up having the Central Florida and Northern Florida um, areas as my region. And I think I mentioned that that was 13 clinics at that time. And those were uh, spread all the way from St. Augustine to Jacksville to Tampa. And so I did quite a bit of traveling, but that also helped me understand what it meant to, operate a multi-unit shop across a broad geographic area.
0: And so you oversaw a budget of $10 million. You were responsible for recruiting and contracting physicians, billing, selecting practice sites, running the information systems, doing purchasing and supply chain management, doing uh, reporting and analyzing data on physician productivity. You had to look at patient flow, wait time, inpatient, and outpatient utilization. How is it possible for one person to accomplish all this and to oversee everything and to make sure the whole region is running smoothly?
1: You know, um, it's uh, as you're listing all those things that I was thinking, man, I, I forgot how much fun that was. And I forgot about all those things that uh, were thrown at me, to tell you the truth. Um, they sound more daunting than maybe they were, but this was just the fundamentals of running a business. $10 million budget may sound like a lot to a lot of folks. Um, I've had up to a $70 million budget. Um, I've been responsible for, uh, both large and small. Um, but those were the fundamentals of business. I had to watch the P I was responsible for the various profit centers. And I really just, you know, how you eat an elephant one bite at a time. There wasn't a lot of time, a lot of patience afforded me, um, but I feel like when you're ready for something and you get on the bike, you get on the horse, things come together. The balance, the energy, the, the creativity. And so I learned all those things pretty much on the job. And I will say, I feel that my undergraduate education really helped me, particularly in the area of riding. We didn't do a lot of email in the early 90s, but I was able to write effectively, write proposals. Um, I had guidance, of course, and I had some pretty serious opposition and challenges from folks that I worked with on occasion, which made it even more interesting. But I think that as I, as I did it, I became
0: more uh, intrigued with it and I took more on. What, what differences in leadership or management styles were there from managing one clinic to managing the entire region? There's a specific skill set
1: in practice management as it relates to dealing with providers, physicians, people who provide the care. Um, And in those days, uh, there was a lot of time spent coaxing uh, providers to see patients in the managed care environment. That has changed, the models have changed a little bit. Providers, doctors are often incentivized to see more patients, but in those days, because they were getting paid a fixed salary, oftentimes it was a real struggle to get the volumes and the productivity up. So a lot of of time was spent on, you know, coaxing and encouraging doctors to see patients. That has changed a lot since, I think, in the world that we're currently in for a number of reasons. Um, But but I would say the primary, um, you know, skill was really learning how to you know, we talked about the human resources part, how to scale the work and deal with larger numbers of people. But then um, as you grow in your, in your span, you have a smaller number of people to manage people who manage people, right? Supervisors, um, directors. And that was a new experience for me, managing people who manage people since I had done all the direct management prior to that myself.
0: So what would you say is, one takeaway that you learned as you scale up the management? A takeaway is that, that I have as
1: it relates to managing people directly is that, um, you've got to be very, this is an interesting combination of, of things I think maybe for your listeners, but strategic and sensitive at the same time. It is human resources. And there are times in your career, for those that are listening, when you may feel like, you know, you've got to get a few notches on on your belt. You've got to do a few terminations and you've got to cut, maybe do some uh, some layoffs throughout your career, make some difficult decisions. Oftentimes, you know, you've got to do reduction in force in order to meet budget. Um, I would encourage you that while you do those things that you remember the human part of what you're doing and the compassion. And understand that, you know, people's lives matter. And I think that was something that I had to learn. And I did learn as I grew as a manager. Takeaway to answer your question would be, you know, be human, be compassionate, be thoughtful and careful. Um, There isn't shouldn't be a lot of pride in just sort of cowboying it or cowgirling it for the sake of doing that. Sometimes there's pressure, and the bottom line will, will often drive that. But do that in the context of, of human compassion.
0: All right, that's really good. And you did say it was a lot of fun. You had a lot of energy, a lot of creativity. Um, but you also mentioned that um, you, have, you had to have balance. So were you working literally nonstop around the clock at this point? Or how was the schedule pretty normal? I was working hard. I was at the point that we're
1: now in my career, I was traveling across central Florida and going to different clinics and doing visits and audits. And, and uh, you know, it's in our notes. We talked a little bit about this in our pre-interview, but I had exposure to a very abusive um, executive in the organization. Something that I think we definitely want to talk a minute about at some point. Um, I do not know we should enjoy those times because uh, you know, as I even reflect, good 15 years of now back on those times. Um, times could have been a little more, could have been a little more fun. They were difficult. I think that's okay. Early in your career, you know, you, you've got to go through some things so that later, when you become an executive director or a CEO, you've been through all of those experiences that make you the person that you are and make you suited for the job that you're going to eventually uh, be in. Um, but I would say that uh, I took way too much abuse from a particular medical director who just had an abusive personality. And um, I wish I had reacted differently. But as I look at it now, there's no excuse under any circumstances under any circumstance to, to take that kind of abuse. I wish I had used the, the HR resources that I was so trained in to have addressed the way he was treating me. Uh, but it made the job unpleasant until finally I did move on from that company. But I I still think of that individual every so often. Word got back to me years later that he he treated me like that because he thought I was talented. But I if that was if that was a reward for being talented, I didn't really need that, you know what I mean. Um I think that's an important point here. Be the manager, be the director, be the CEO, you'd like to have. Um I learned later, as I moved on to the Nemours Children's Clinic, which is a DuPont-related organization, that the culture of the organization is largely set by, of course, by the people in it, and it's set by the leadership. Um, How you speak to one another, um, whether you tolerate certain types of language, we are very aware now and have all kinds of training against abusive behavior, sexual harassment. That wasn't the situation here. Um, You know, but if we want to have a culture or like I said, be the manager, be the director, be the CEO that you'd like to have.
0: Yeah. And going one more question about that. How would, what advice would you give to someone who is undergoing uh, adverse circumstances or a hostile work environment? Um, similar to what you mentioned, where you had someone who really uh, was opposed and gave uh, uh, a lot of struggle.
1: You know, you just reminded me Javier. I don't know that we even had any training as, as far as I can remember the early nineties around hostile work environment. That's exactly what this is. You know, and I think I wish I had that tool available to, you know, to me to make that report and maybe make things, uh, make things better. I don't remember exactly the tire uh, part of your question, but I would say this, um, Clearly, the things that we accepted in the workforce years and years ago, like how women had been treated and marginalized, underpaid, uh, and other folk in the workforce you know, relegated to certain tasks, we don't accept that anymore. As soon as we see it and we identify it, we call it out. So things have changed in the past 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago, I think we were still in a place where these weren't common practices, these weren't common trainings. And for those millennials that li- that are listening to me and, and younger, they don't tolerate this at all. I mean, as far as they're concerned, you know, they're I have a, a niece who I just had a conversation with who's 25 years old, as is my daughter. And uh, they have different expectations um, and don't tolerate certain behavior from employers that we once did. So in answer to your question, I think that. Be familiar, be uh, Equipped, understand the policy and, and pull the trigger when you need to for your own, when your own good, for your own good, if, if it's necessary. Other than that, then, then, then work your management structures. Oftentimes we know that you have to manage up and not everybody is. Not everybody's easy to work with. And part of the challenge is sorting through how you work through a different, difficult management Structure or individual and a high-pressure environment and it's up to you to figure that out and oftentimes you will grow through it And you
0: should grow through it yeah. And So we'll go back to your story and there's a lot more I want to talk about um, Which is what you brought up, but um, you said you went to Nemours uh, After and you were a senior manager for clinic operations uh, you oversaw uh, operations for pediatric medicine and surgery practices um, how is this role different than the regional administrator position in the previous company? Well, for
1: those in healthcare, Javier will tell you that that working in the for-profit, um, this actually is really in across business. I think in general, moving from uh, for-profit to nonprofit is a pretty sig- significant change, and that's what happened here. The companies I worked for were for-profit company. I believe they were publicly held. And then I went, so I went off to work for this DuPont related world-class pediatric specialty clinic where, wherein Mr. DuPont, um, Alfred I. DuPont was a Florida entrepreneur, a maverick, had left the bolus of his uh, wealth to the establishment of a clinic that would take care of children with special needs without regard for their ability to pay known as the Nemours Children's Clinic and uh, I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. I went from two different environments, from a highly pressurized environment to a very mission-driven client-focused environment, and it was a completely different world. And it was, uh, for me, a very much a needed change and has served as the foundation for all of the work that I do in terms of healthcare, as it relates to, to, to um, compassion and having service available to those that need it. Now, um, the, the work was quite a bit different because it wasn't primary care, primarily, it was pediatric specialty care. And so there I learned the rigors of, of private practice management and what it meant to manage uh, subspecialists and divisional divisions within a, a multi-specialty practice. So I had 18, at one point, out of 18 practices. Half of those were surgery, uh, general surgery, pediatric surgery, urology, um, a couple others that were thrown in there, uh, ear, nose, and throat, and then I had the medicine divisions as well, pulmonology, gastroenterology, the non-invasive, I guess you'd, you'd say, uh, um, types of, of specialties, and that was a fantastic experience. Uh, it was there that I learned about the the relationship that of patient practice has with a a hospital. I learned many of the things that I've used in my career uh, were so important in that role and have been formative. A lot of it has to do with um, the analytics and understanding the money and understanding uh, payer mix. Uh, In 1999, when electronic health records were not as broadly used as they are now, I had the experience of implementing uh, EPIC uh, health record into an orthopedic practice. I like to joke and say we did this in the middle of the summer when kids were getting injured, uh, and it was a huge disruption, and I call it the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, That wasn't the time or the place to introduce an electronic health record into a a medical practice, but it was really, really unfortunate. A difficult or great experience, that whole experience working with an organization who was de- that was dedicated to providing health care to kids that didn't have it. I recall of the many medical professionals that I worked with and admired the most, the nurses in the hematology oncology area, the cancer unit, were the most passionate, uh, oftentimes difficult uh, professionals in the building and the reason was is they loved their patients they had a real passion for those kids they protected them they didn't like the shenanigans that administration oftentimes introduced they were very patient care focused and it was there that I, I developed a very patient uh, I think customer oriented focus during my time in the children clinic the children's clinic
0: yeah. and at this point uh, within one year of working at Nemours uh, You had your opportunity, an opportunity to get an MBA. That's right. So, um, and you went to Nova Southeastern University and you had an emphasis in entrepreneurial studies. So what did you learn uh, at an MBA that helped you with your career at this point?
1: Well, here's what I learned. And that is, particularly as a CEO, is that it is... It was a rare opportunity, a fabulous opportunity that this organization uh, gave me, and that they agreed to pay for my uh, my master's degree. Essentially, when they hired they hired me uh, again, it was Dupont related, so they had a, a pretty robust tuition reimbursement program. But they didn't have to do what they did, and that was that they compressed five years of tuition. Uh, it was roughly twenty thousand dollars worth of tuition for me to pursue and finish my MBA that's one of the greatest gifts I think I've ever been given Mm -hmm. apart from all the gifts of life and all the other good things was that my uh, my boss my mentor Bill Winder a pharmacist himself who had an MBA um, agreed to let me go back to school part-time and I went did all those evening hours and started slogging away at that MBA working at night on the courses on accounting and going to class over the weekend for 22 months. Um, you know, without that support, I wouldn't be standing here today having this conversation with you. Um, that degree program opened doors and really essentially assured that doors wouldn't be shut where they could be shut because I didn't have the credentials to do that. But it was a wonderful opportunity. And they did um, have a, a, a a policy where you had to stay for a certain number of years in order to repay, uh, and I did do that uh, as a as a way of gratitude, and I had no problem doing that. But I'm so grateful that they embedded that into my uh, my position. So I've worked really hard at this organization to make sure that we have a tuition tuition assistance program. We just launched it. Uh, I want stu I want employees here who, if they have an interest in an academic track, can go from you know, nurse to LVN to RN to MSN to perhaps doctor degree of nursing or even go to medical school. I had a a provider in Austin where I was CEO for a number of years who uh, started off as an MBA. Fast forward many years later, he came back to us double boarded in internal medicine and pediatrics. So he is an extreme example of what happens when someone sets their mind and does all the academic training. There should be support for that, and fortunately, we've had the support of our board to embed some tuition assistance, so we can see folks go get that finance degree. If they want to work in finance, or they want to learn about HR, if it directly relates to their work and their study, or to potential, you know, in the in the healthcare field. And we think it's with their agreement that it's relevant. We will help support that.
0: Yeah, and so. Um... Given that you did entrepreneurial studies as a focus in your MBA, did you want to start a business or what about entrepreneurship? Um, Did you learn that either starting something on your own or bringing that skill set back into the company and be an entrepreneur within the company? uh, What what were you looking to get with that part of your education? I was,
1: and I've been pondering this lately uh, as we've, gained some attention here in in Hayward, California for our firehouse clinic, which is an innovation um, that is uh, new and unusual. I've been thinking about what I gained from a program that taught entrepreneurship while not starting or running my own business. And I think that it gave me the mindset that within the context of a business that you don't own, you have an opportunity to be innovative and entrepreneurial. And that is seeing and sizing up opportunities that might benefit, obviously, the organization fulfill its mission, but that are um, that are out of the box um, innovation. One of the definitions that I like about it is that it requires alliances, typically that don't currently exist. And one of the things that I enjoy in terms of innovation is connecting with community partners, connecting with maybe a not so obvious partner, sometimes they're obvious partners, but the connecting is an important part, Um, and how you go about creating something innovative and new and entrepreneurial uh, that way. And I think that's what I learned in my program.
0: And uh, so in general, I want to just ask a few general uh, leadership questions at this point in your career. um, Are there any books or other people who have inspired you along the way to... Help you to achieve more. Yes, I had a note here
1: because you're going to ask me this question. But the first ninety days by Michael Watkins mm. is a is the and there's a there's so many good ones. The Peter Drucker books and all of those, but I like the first ninety days, and I think it's a good applicable book for any new manager, any any uh, new supervisor, any new executive, any new CEO to an organization. And that is that you go through uh, after assessing the position and you develop a plan, a 90 day plan, uh, which you could extend into 180 days 80 days. And you turn that into a working document with measurable outcomes and measurable goals and objectives and having a new COO that I recently hired who's done just that. It, it's proven to me once again how effective that is. He's given me a very clear outline of all the work that he's that he's been that he's going to do, and then we sat down recently, went back over that, and I can see exactly what he has accomplished. And he's accomplished a great deal of these of these uh, these objectives that he set set out. Um, I like that about that book. I think going into a new position, one of the, the favor you can do yourself is present your new supervisor. Um, your or your board of directors, um, having done the necessary assessment, given the level of stress the organization is in, sometimes there isn't the time to do that. Sometimes that is the plan to to take an organization out of its stressful situation. But if it's not, then you have an opportunity to create a longitudinal plan that's measurable, that tells your board, tells your supervisor, tells whoever you report to, what you're up to, and what you're going to accomplish. Some of those are tangible, some of those are not. Cultural shifts oftentimes take a lot more than 90 days to accomplish. Um, But fixing operational problems, low-hanging fruit can oftentimes take certainly less than 90 days in some cases.
0: And uh, just in general, what has been the role of speaking up or giving your uh, opinion, especially if it differs with um, the organization or the culture, um, when you are in a new role? how important is it to do that or should you not give that opinion at first and give it later in a different context?
1: Well, I would ask you to clarify your question, if you're talking about this CEO hat, it's incumbent upon you, you're hired uh, for the most part to give that opinion and to speak up. Uh, if you are coming in in a different role, you have to evaluate um, that, you have to understand the context that you're in and what you're asked to offer I guess would be one way so I think it I think it varies certainly if you're coming into an organization as the head person and you're charged with you know making change it's your it's incumbent upon you to, to, to obviously speak up and help design change I did that using some tools from a previous position by establishing pillars that I thought were important for the organization. The one that I'm in now, when I first came in, I I looked, I characterized what I wanted to accomplish in the first year, um, using three pillars, culture, quality, access, quality, and culture. I realized the organization needed to provide greater access to the community, to to the care that we provide. I wanted to make sure there was, uh, there was focus on quality care, And I wanted to make sure there was a cultural shift that said to the community, we're here to serve you. So I organized my objectives around three simple areas. This can be found in the literature um, that most of the people listening to can find, but organizing your your efforts around three or four very specific goals is an effective way to get some uh, desire moved on organizational change.
0: And uh, okay, so we'll go back um, to your story and I'll... Talk more generally about leadership lessons later on, um, but it's good that you said it. There's different roles as a CEO and not as a CEO, and uh, to understand the context of the of the environment. Um, but after receiving your MBA, you became the COO at a, at the time what was called Central Texas Community Health Centers, and this was one of the largest community health center systems in Texas. Um, how would you describe that experience?
1: Well, that was my first executive role. So here I was, having just finished my MBA, I was at the DuPont-related organization. I'd been there almost five years, and I felt like it was time to change. And so I um, applied for and received a position um, with the city of Austin, city of Austin, Texas. And they actually, which is unusual in, in this particular model of care that we're in, they actually held what we call the Federally Qualified Health Center status, FQHC. So they were operating as a department of the city of Boston, these health centers across the, the community. They would commonly be called, probably in the old days, public health clinics. But they had just recently gone under uh, a change were be- had become community health clinics. So they needed someone who had been in the private practice sector, essentially, which is where I was, to come in and modernize the practice. And I was hired to do that. But what I found was that I was an assistant director um, in the city structure in addition to being a chief operating officer. So I ended up with this fabulous opportunity to learn how municipality, the municipality environment, the public entity environment works while running a health uh, outpatient community health center system um, uh, that was part of that. And so I'm very grateful for that unique experience. I got sort of a dual exposure um, by taking that position. I went in as, uh, as a new executive and never, had been an executive before, so that was my first entree to, to the executive ranks.
0: And, and within three years, you were appointed the CEO of that organization, and you had oversight for all aspects of the organization. And you had to report to a board and uh, serve the community. But in 2009, you led the transition of the organization out of the city of Austin department to a nonprofit, which was uh, called Community Care. So can you talk about that whole sure. transition? And- I think the part we don't want
1: to miss here is when I became CEO from COO. And that is um, through the succession plan that um, uh, was in place that allowed me after the CEO that had been there that I reported to for the first three years, she moved on and took another position. And I, uh, the board selected me having been the incumbent COO. Uh, to become CEO. And that's an, that was an important time in my career. I was 39 years old at the time. Um, I had sights at that point on being a CEO. I wanted to, in healthcare, I wanted that role. And uh, I worked hard. Um, but it was my first experience being hired and fired, uh, hired not fired, uh, a board hires and fires the CEO. But it was my first experience being hired by the board, by a board of directors. So I now had a new management skill I was going to have to learn. That is how you manage a board of directors. Um, certainly, uh, there are many books written on gov- governance that your listeners can read about. But that is, uh, from a personal point of view, has been one of the most uh, pleasurable, often challenging, but most rewarding parts of of the work is working with a, a board. Now, in our model of care, more than half of the board members must be patients of the healthcare um, operation that you're responsible for. That's what the federally qualified health center model is. It's a long-standing model. It has its roots in South Africa and I won't go into great detail, but the 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 majority of the board must be consumers of the services. And that's really that's really a different experience because those board members are actually patients of the system, and they tell you what's going on. Uh, Many times, Miss Julia uh, would tell me exactly what was going on when she went in to get her care, and it was very informative. It helped me understand what the patient experience was, uh, what the follow-through was like, what the um, environment of care was, and it's a really proven methodology that is widely used across uh, our movement also known as the community health center movement. So that was a really uh, extraordinary uh, wake-up call for me, was having to now manage a board of, of people that I had never I'd never done that before.
0: Yeah, and you're right. Um, I did skip. We should talk about like uh, the transition from CEO, COO to CEO. What do you think were the skill sets that led you to stand out to be the one chosen as CEO? Because I'm sure there might have been other people... Also wanting to be CEO. Well, I think in our case there was a specific, a specific, one.
1: there was a specific uh, transitional plan, succession plan that um, it became clear when I when I got there uh, that I would probably move into that position when my um, boss at that time, the CEO, moved on. So I had the support of the board already. And there are times when, of course, you are going to compete for the role. They're going to put out an RFP or, or do national recruitment for a position. And you know maybe you've been in the organization for a long time and find that you're now competing for the position that you want. I didn't experience that in this case. I was selected, uh, they had their eye on me and they nurtured, they brought me along. And I, I, have, I felt like that's sort of the byline of my career arc and my trajectories. I've had great support all along the way. I don't feel like, um, I've had a, you know, I've hit a wall. I feel like there's been great support. I think particularly being African American in the nineties, I personally felt like there were opportunities that I could and should seize, um, both for educational funding and for, um, you know, in terms of opportunities and I felt great support. for that. So as I, as I moved into that role, um, the the thing I would highlight is it's a different pair of shoes. It's a different chair. Being an operator is a, is different than being a CEO. There's a different leadership quality that's involved. It's the same story about that you hear frequently about whether CFOs make it uh, are often able to make the transition to this Eo role. Much different dynamic. It's definitely a different hat, and I was surprised, frankly, and shocked at how different it was. How you go from doing wrench work to more architecture and more planning, more strategic work, and a lot more um, in the field I was in an the era I was in, much more sort of connecting and public uh, relations work, community-based relations and politics. Uh, those become much more apparent, I think, for a lot of folk that have never been in the chair before and have come from a different position within the C-suite.
0: And, uh, so what what did surprise you the most and what, well, I have a, a bunch of questions. What surprised you the most? What about their support and their nurturing uh, helped you to ease into that transition? Um, so maybe we'll talk about those two first. Uh, I think the politics um, were the, among the m- the
1: most surprising to me. Uh, and in the environment I was in, there were politics uh, that, that had to be dealt with. Uh, the organization that I was responsible for received uh, property tax dollars, and where there are pub- where there's public funding, there's high levels of accountability. Um, in Austin, uh, the department that I ran often was covered by the news media, so there were things to consider there in terms of uh, making plans that were transparent and that the public could support. There. There was what I call sequencing that you had to learn in public service. You really can't do C and D if you haven't done A and B. You, you know, you really have to be sequential uh, when you're dealing in public, in the public sector, because you will be held accountable when steps are mess, missed. And this again, I talked about Javier the rigors of uh, the HR process I learned early on. Working in the municipal environment taught me a lot about business processes and the sequentiality related to that as it relates to doing RFPs, to making sure that the, that notifications happen a certain way, that the right people are informed. Yes, I reported to a board, but I also had a city manager to whom I was accountable. So managing those various dynamics and the processes therein was very, very good experience for me. And so I spent seven years in that environment being, I mentioned before I was an assistant director in the municipal structure. When I became CEO of the health center, I also became the rank of a director, a city director within the city structure, which meant that my peers were the fire chief, the police chief, the head of housing, public works, the utility. So I was on a different level dealing with um, some pretty high level peers with so some pretty high level, um, executives. And I learned a lot from those folks talk about understanding how to navigate through, um, difficult and oftentimes very, uh, treacherous and, uh, full of obstacles uh, at time, obstacles, uh, pathways. I learned a lot watching how these folks managed through that. It was very, very useful.
0: Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I want to talk about you did have you did eventually uh, transition the organization out, but I would do you have a story of uh, one of those difficult or treacherous scenarios that you did overcome and you did go through and what you learned from that?
1: I have so many war stories; it's it's uh, it's it's unbelievable. But for the purpose of this interview, I think since you pointed out the fact that I had to transition the department from a city department into a nonprofit. This happened by operation of law. The voters of Austin created a health care district. And so the, the health care funding was now not being collected by the city government. It was going to be uh, collected by a, a taxing entity. And that forced us to move all the health care services out of the city structure. Now, let me just tell you, People who work for cities and counties have a certain culture. There's a uh, there's a way about that environment. There's security there. Um, there are some really good benefits that larger entities have. You know, and these folks that I had at that point, I'm going to say we had maybe three or four hundred employees. They were not interested in moving out of the city and losing their um, their pension. I was also I also had a you know a very nice retirement plan with the city. Um, we had to figure out how we were going to create some reciprocity, I'm not using the exact term, but make sure that their um, service transferred and that they didn't lose anything. There was a lot of pushback uh, in making that transfer. It was very, very tricky. Um, the employees in the beginning certainly didn't want to do that. They didn't want to leave the city. They didn't want to leave, They didn't want to leave the protection of the city. But we knew that. We knew it was the right thing. We knew that we needed, um, in addition to the fact we were compelled to do it, uh, to step our game up and become more community-focused and community-based required no longer being attached to the city, no longer being viewed as a, a department of the city, but instead being a nonprofit with significant funding from the taxing authority, we hope would give us the agility to do more creative, innovative entrepreneurial things in the community to raise the health outcomes of the community through um, effective outpatient care. And I think that's exactly what happened.
0: And so what I'm just curious, like, uh, as you're going through this transition, what kind of conversations are you having with the board in order to come up with this plan? Uh, or who are you mobilizing for help? Uh, yeah, how do you go about reorganizing it when yeah there is a lot of opposition, and uh, how do you come up with that higher mission or how did you come up with your strategy, to um, to move? Well, forward I would there? say
1: I would say it was uh, a heavily project man- you know, a lot of project management. So let's just talk on the operational level, certainly there were all the moving parts that required you know you know moving IT out of the city structure, but in terms of the higher strategic. Uh, objectives, Javier. Um, there were uh, there were committees and folks from each organization, the taxing entity, the city itself, and then the future organization that sat down. We planned this as as, de- in a, as detailed a fashion as we could. Um, we had a target date where the federal government would move our FQHC status, our federally qualified health center status, from the city to this new organization. So we had a hard date where we would become that new entity. And so we had to project manage. We had to be very clear uh, around strategy. Um, As I mentioned, anytime you are dealing with tax dollars, you've got to be clear, transparent, articulate, communicative, and engaging. And on many occasions, we didn't do the job we'd like to have done. I think that we did a pretty a pretty good job in, in keeping the public informed and the employees informed. So it took real thought and real hard work to make sure everybody understood what the strategic purpose uh, was. We spent we all spent a lot of time explaining to people why we needed to do this.
0: And we had to have the narrative to do that. Yeah. And uh, do you at that at this point or at any point of your career do you Ever look outside of the organization for inspiration or other examples of it being, of something being done that you then bring in that uh, thinking or uh, knowledge back into the organization.
1: Oh, I I hope so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we ought to, particularly as as the heads of our organization, we're supposed to be the thought leaders. So I'm always collecting and observing and uh, listening going to conferences, you and I met at a conference where a, gr- a great number of ideas among some very successful peers, uh, they, w- they were in session sharing best practices. So yeah, absolutely. Collecting and, and getting inspiration from others is absolutely important. You, you should ingest that and then meditate on that and and figure out what is applicable and then figure out how you're going to roll out those those things that could impact your organization.
0: And um, now going back to the reorganization, how do you hold people accountable to accomplishing uh, that new change when they were opposed to it originally?
1: In that case, you know, your question, that was a question in your list here, and I thought it was related to, and probably is, to how we keep, how, accountability happens
0: okay
1: yeah. now right. and, and I can answer that okay. it's yeah, really, yeah. that's a really good question and I think people are interested in how do you keep each other accountable
0: yeah okay
1: yeah related to that project there were very clear accountabilities and in fact uh, one of the accountabilities I had was to ensure that the organization um, was as productive as possible that was something we knew and that the city uh, rather the new taxing entity that had its own board, required of me. And that was a challenge I had in my career there was moving that organization to, uh, to more of, uh, I guess say an ideal state where they were utilizing tax dollars to deliver care as effectively as possible. And that was a daunting task. It was a daunting task to take systems that are oftentimes, uh, conditioned to do what they've always done and then ask them to do more. Uh, so the accountabilities have to happen. And those are, in my View Those are done through very clear plans with objectives that are measured as it relates to the work I do as a CEO now. And I know my colleague CEOs that are listening will agree with me. You know, if you're uh, running an organization in a team based fashion with highly competent uh, people around you, I've got uh, a group of vice presidents and executive vice presidents, COO, CFO, um, CAO i titled some of them executive vice presidents. These are folks who keep me on my toes. My work was to hire uh, people who had really good chops in their, in their area. And I worked hard to do that. I probably spent a little more than maybe um, I had to on finding talent that I didn't have to babysit. Um, these are people who bring ideas to me. They're ahead of the curve. Um, I think that that's part of what a coach does right on a successful team, whether it's a major league team, basketball or, or, uh, or, hockey team, whatever it may be, you're looking for talent that knows how to bring it and knows how to react and is, um, looking for their next challenge. Tying that to accountability. Um, I feel like that comes through performance reviews and sitting down and having, uh, discussion with the people that you work with. And most people want to do a great job. Most people want to be effective, particularly at the executive level. They want to do their work. But what you can give them in exchange, in my opinion, is high levels of autonomy. Meaning that, and you've heard me say this, that I feel that when you give your domain away, instead of hoarding it, And if you're a person who isn't threatened by people being successful in your organization, you're going to be a successful leader. It's my expectation by giving my domain away that people will take that and cultivate it. I want them to learn as much as possible because ultimately I want them ready for this chair that I sit in. To me, that's a huge reward. So giving your domain away and letting people experience that is critically important. I think there's accountability in that.
0: Yeah, so um, as you say, your interest is to share your, an executive interest is to share your domain and to get people to a place where they need to go. So w- what does this mean in terms of uh, like mentorship or nurturing or yeah, giving them the responsibility?
1: Future leaders. I uh, simply put, um, we can't afford, particularly in this particular model of care, we have a strong tradition going back to the 1960s. We have some forebearers. I like to say that Tversio Vasquez Health Center started with its hands in the dirt. Someone way back in the 60s and 70s said, we need health care in Union City, California, and here's how we're going to do it. And they made it happen. Um, and that happened across the United States, that many visionary uh, people uh, who came from the civil rights movement worked very hard to make sure that this particular model of care um, grew and was available to the communities across our great country. They're retiring, and they're going to retire. I'm 54 years old. I'll retire in 11 years. Uh, It seems like a long time. It'll go by fast. I really have a vested interest in making sure that there are people who will carry the torch that are behind me that will make sure this work goes on. And I want them equipped. I want them ready to sit in this chair and to have... The vision, the passion that um, our forefathers in this work back in the '60s and the '70s, the great leaders that you can uh, you'll you'd hear about. Go to NACNACHC.com. You can read an overview of our work uh, at the national association level. These were hardworking people who made who stood up this healthcare care system that now employs um, I'm going to say 150,000 plus individuals. We see some 28 million patients a year. We are spread throughout the country in uh, 9,000 sites. There are about 15 to 1,600 community health centers in the United States, federally qualified. So our backbone is the passion and the leadership that makes this model work. And if you've been listening to the news, we are a bipartisan um, movement. People like health centers, Javier, because the return on investment is very high. Keep people out of the ER, you reduce the long-term costs, the longitudinal costs. When you don't go to the ER for a toothache or for an earache and can be seen quickly here, that's a savings to the entire healthcare system. So that's the goal is to make sure there are future leaders who understand how the economics and the passion work.
0: And uh, so I do want to talk about that, um, but just going back, um, bringing the story back to uh, where you are now or where you were, um, a few years ago, which is the CEO of Community Care, you scaled the business from 35 million to 68 million in your time. Uh, what were the challenges with scaling the operation? Was it the fact that it became uh, a nonprofit that allowed it to gain additional funding? That maybe something in the city environment was holding back, or what factors could it have been? I wish I could take
1: credit for uh, you know, some credible genius that I have, which I don't, uh, that allowed me to sort of uh, figure out how I was going to nearly double the budget. Here's what happened. I think that shepherding it and, and uh, guiding the growth with the help of many others was a large part of what I did, but more, more funding became available. More opportunity, the opportunity to open new sites and new health centers. Uh, opened up several new he- health centers, including a $25 million facility in North Austin. That added some, I'm going to say, $10 million to the operating budget. So as we grew through opportunity, um, the budget grew. Um, it, a little different than in the commercial scaling that you might have in a, in a for profit. Nonetheless, uh, these were dollars that now were uh, available that needed to be leveraged and that were des- destined and designed for healthcare. So the real work was designing how those services could be, um, could be scaled, expanded, and and those dollars could be used effectively to bring an ROI, return on investment, that ultimately would bring a lower healthcare cost to the community, which is something we're all interested in. When we see higher costs, of course, then we see higher health plan costs, and those premiums show up in our when we, you know, get our paycheck every month or we're paying higher premiums. And, um, is there
0: any other, uh, Lesson or idea you would want to share about that experience at a community care?
1: Well, I think that un- Oftentimes those exposure those experiences come to you. you 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 need to be ready to push out right and to develop and expand and then sometimes you also need to be able to to react and pull in and and grow and guide so those are two two oftentimes different scenarios where you're going out looking for money and expanding or when there, are, there is funding available, you're figuring out how you're going to leverage and how you're going to uh, you know, turn 50 cents into a dollar. And that's the exciting part. You asked me about the entrepreneurial aspect. There were times when we, you know, we would think about the dollars that we have and how do we leverage those, who do we partner with, how do we make that 50 cents into a dollar. That's a lot of fun. That was the entrepreneurial part that uh, I think I extracted from those experiences, but didn't learn necessarily in school. And
0: also, one other thing, while you were at that organization, uh, you were elected to the National Board, and which I believe was National Association for Community Health Centers. Yes. And uh, so you were the youngest person there. And looking out, there wasn't much diversity on the panel. Um, so how did this make you feel? And I know you did touch upon uh, yeah, sharing your domain and uh, providing opportunities for others, but... Yeah, just maybe give more perspective what you felt at the time seeing that.
1: Well, I um, have actually recently since I moved to Texas to uh, California, um, I am honored to uh, have been sent back to the national board by my peers here in California. I gave the seat up and came here, and I am going back. Um, and I do think uh, that it's an honor to work at the national level, help set. Policy for the health centers across the United States through the National Association. Um, what I feel, of course, is important is that we remain as diverse as possible. Um, we have a relatively d- diverse organization, and I think um, my colleagues in the organization would tell you that they they definitely want to see a you know a cadre of young, diverse uh, health center leaders come forth. And I would like to help do that. And I would like to make sure that there is a pathway um, to national service and participation where, uh, you know, a variety of skills and skill sets are represented, but that we have good diversity. And so I'm glad to be invited back on the board. As I as you did mention, I do believe I was the youngest person on the board at that time and about four years ago and I was 48 odd years old or 40 something along this in my late forties. And I felt uh, that there needed to be more youth uh, involved, younger, younger uh, board members. And I, I hope to see that happen. And uh,
0: so, and before going to your current role, which is uh, the CEO of Tibercio Vasquez, um, I just have a few more general questions. Sure. What, at this point, you're already the CEO of a 70 million organization. You're on national boards. Um, what do you think were the factors that led you to be the CEO or you to be the youngest person? Um, What was it that you felt you did throughout your career that led you to that point at so young in your forties?
1: Well, at that point I had, I had been working in community health for 10 years and that's actually not that long compared to some of um, our, my colleagues, who oftentimes have done this for 34 years, I'm getting ready to start my sixteenth year. I'm still, in some ways, junior. To answer your question, um, I, I think passion. I, that sounds so cliche, but if you're really, particularly as it relates to this work, interested in improving people's health outcomes, you work to that end, and and you put place that first and foremost. Along with the sustainability of the operation of the organization you've t- you've taken, I think that speaks a lot, and I, and I hope that's what happened. That my passion, my interest in this work, and being a torch torchbearer, hopefully, it was evident. And I think that, that that it has been. Yeah,
0: and so you did talk about yeah, mission driven purpose and having a passion. So what, when did you realize this was your purpose? I know you talked about when uh, before in college your college years, you did your trip to Mexico. And uh, going through uh, your career, you realize this is what you want to do, but how did you find what your passion was and how did you find your purpose was throughout the career? Well,
1: Javier, I think in many ways we're the sum total of our experiences, right? We, uh, I, I'd say I've grown into this from the point I made that first trip to Mexico. I left uh, Shenandoah College with uh, a trunk and uh, a maybe my Bible and a book a book or two and my birth certificate it went down to Mexico to go figure out how to speak Spanish and live in Mexico for a while having left college. I think it started there. I'm very sure it did. And that's why I said earlier, we expect sometimes young people to have it all figured out early on. It took me a while. Um, I'm just very grateful that as I figured it out, the trajectory of my career lifted me in the direction that I've been wanting to go and have gone over these years. So the passion, I think, develops, you know, what, what do you think about when you're tossing and turning at night that that inspires you in your career? That's probably the thing that's driving you. And I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's not money. It's about change. Oftentimes it's about a, accomplishing something that, uh, that, that speaks to other people. Um, we know that, you know, working just for the dime has a bit of an empty feel to it. The money comes. I would say to the young people that are listening to me, and I know my colleagues, CEOs would agree, um, the money comes. and it, and you know, in a nonprofit where we don't make huge sums of money and have elaborate golden parachutes or, or or plans, but I certainly can provide for my family and my kids and my retirement. And still love what I do, and, and and feel very satisfied, and travel and enjoy. So I think let your passion, let your. I know it's very cliche, but people know that it's true. They're passionate about lots of things. Channel that.
0: So, what would you say your why, or your cause is?
1: My cause is is to improve the health of the community. And when I got back from Mexico in 1990. Or, or 91 or two, I got a very bad infection, staph infection, that rendered me pretty ill. And I didn't have any access to care. I certainly didn't have any money. Um, I was going back to school at the time, and I, uh, I didn't have any access to care. My wife at the time happened to be a nurse, and she was able to score some antibiotics for me. Uh, and then I went and finally got treated. But that, had a, that made a deep impression on me. I, I, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know where to get healthcare, and that has been part of why I feel that making sure people have access to care when they need it is really important.
0: And uh, now, in 2012, uh, you decided to move back to California to become the CEO of Tiburcio Vasquez. Um, it's a healthcare system that serves nearly 15,000 clients in Alameda County in California. It has an annual operating budget of 35 million. Um, when you first arrived, what did you learn about the culture of the organization and how did you decide or find out what you wanted to work on?
1: Well, as a point of clarity, this was my, this was my first time moving to California. I had my eye on California. Um, uh, my whole life as a kid in, from New Jersey, I thought California was the land of, you know, sun shining, the streets were paved with gold and college was free and I wanted to come here. Um, so I was happy to have the opportunity to take a position here in 2012 and leave the 103-degree summers of Texas to get out here into the Bay Area. And uh, I was hired by the board here to, uh, to take over this health center. Uh, we, we are closer to 25,000 patients in our panel. When I got here, it was around 10,000. We've grown through Medicaid expansion because of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. But I found a, uh, an organization that while having a very strong civil rights sort of root structure um, had lost its way as it relates to its basic business responsibilities. It was not sustainable. We had barely sustainable. It was doing okay. We had about a half an hour. Or I, I joke, we had about half an afternoon of cash on hand when I got here. It just needed fundamental sustainability work, which we, which we did. And we went about um, hiring uh, more practitioners and reorganizing our finances and doing just the wrench work to make this a much more solid organization than than it was. It had a very strong mission. Uh, This organization um, provides uh, WIC services, which is unusual for community health centers in some cases, and we have a very strong family support services arm. So we weren't. When I got here, we weren't driving enough revenue through the medical dental practice. And that was the first thing I focused on.
0: And, you know, I also realized I got ahead of myself. Um, When you're the CEO of a position of a company or just any position, what what are the factors that help you to realize that, oh, it's time to move on to something else like uh, you could have probably stayed in Texas, but. And I know you said you wanted to move to California, but uh, at what point is it time to move on to something else? Well, for the purposes of
1: this podcast, I'll be blunt. I felt that I had been there um, at ten years; I'd been there long enough, and that it was time for change. And um, the uh, the political winds were changing um, there, and and the, in in the area, and some new things were were. Uh, were coming about that were of advantage to the community. And I think I felt it was fortuitous for, for me since this the opportunity to to come up to make the change. and I'm, and I'm glad I did. And my uh, my successor did a very nice job there in Austin. And I think they're they continue to grow. But I felt that it was time to move on and I felt that I wanted to take on some new challenges and, and start, you know, kind of back to the stuff I love to do, which is sort of build systems and fix systems and and grow. And grow. And, and you know grow with a new opportunity.
0: And in terms of uh, succession planning, uh, how soon from the point of knowing when you want to leave to actually leaving the organization, is that like a one year period? or how short or long of a time frame is it, and what do you do to prepare the next person?
1: Well, I had I did do a succession plan well in advance of my departure, probably a couple of years. That's a responsibility that usually is built into the job description of most CEOs, particularly in the nonprofit sector. So I had that laid out who would take over in the event that I left. So I, I think I gave uh, 90 day notice once my opportunity came about and then proceeded to to, uh, you know, move on and wrap things up.
0: And so you've been at uh, Tabersio Vasquez for four years now. What do you feel is your biggest accomplishment to date?
1: I'm really proud of this organization. We just um, went through two weeks ago a very rigorous uh, federal exam uh, called the Operational Site Review that all of us that do this work that receive what we call Section 330 funding are, are required to go through. And that is we have 19 key areas uh, the most important of which is the quality care that we give, that we have to we, we're measured against, and it's a rigorous process. So I could tell you, as uh, I mentioned, about the financial gains that we've made, the expansions. I mentioned a little bit about our innovation as it relates to uh, uh, our firehouse clinic, which will be featured on PBS here very shortly on the News Hour in the next few uh, weeks. From my understanding. Um, all of that is fine and dandy, but if we're not delivering quality care, then uh, our work is in vain and accessible uh, care. One of the monikers and one of the programs I put into place here uh, here at Tversa uh Health Centers was the 72-hour access to care promise. I was really sick and tired of giving the community this message I don't, your listeners probably can't see this, but that is come, but don't come. We either come in, you can get in and see us or you can't, but let's not give the community mixed signals. And so I went about making sure that we were um, meeting that, re- that obligation to make sure patients could be seen when they need to be seen. When patients are seen in a timely fashion, um, health outcomes greatly improve and ER utilization is reduced. So we... I'm very proud of the fact that we have appointments available. It's not um, uh, we have a health we have a health center where urgent care visits or rather same day care visits can happen virtually uh, whenever they're needed. But I wanted to make sure that we opened up and and were available for the community as we we're as we're supposed to be, and, and we've accomplished that. My new uh, vice president of operations has been very effective in ensuring assuring that and. We've had tremendous support from a wonderful group of providers and medical leadership that have taken this on and said, we wanna be available to the community. So I wanna make sure I don't exclude that the people who do the work day in and day out are the ones who have made this happen. And that's the people that put patients in rooms, that check patients in, and importantly, the people with the stethoscopes that make, you know, who work very hard, and in many cases could be earning a lot more money over at Kaiser or one of the other large health systems, but choose to work at a community health center like ours. Uh,
0: so what do you feel the biggest challenges at your, organ- or what's the biggest challenge at your organization that you face today? Well, it's the, the new legislation is going to be a challenge.
1: People have asked me, uh, the AHCA, the American Health Care Act, um, does have in it, again, we're a bipartisan, um, you know, m- movement model of care. But the fact is, is that many of us have enjoyed uh, Medicaid expansion. has added, in our case, 5,000 patients to our roles. Those are patients that could be seen. Not all of them have been seen, been seen, but now had qualified for Medicaid as a result of the Affordable Care Act. Um, if the American Health Care Act is fully passed and is fully implemented, um, there's a chance, of course, that Medicaid will be will move to block granting and that the states will be left with the ability to be more creative with um, their Medicaid dollars. But that, the net effect, many of us believe, is that less people will have access to care. Medicaid, remember, was, just, was primarily focused on uh, women, pregnant women and children. The um, ACA raised the levels to 138 of poverty, of the, of the federal poverty level, allowing uh, adult, many adults to be covered so they, they had access to care where they did not before. So if that goes away, it really means that there are people who do not have access to care who currently have it now. So that's a challenge for us. Those are revenues that we, you know, for all intents and purposes, in many ways, we're a, we're a Medicaid contractor. Our health center sees a large number of Medicaid. And we also see a lot of folks because our mission requires us to see patients without regard to their ability to pay. We do see families that don't have uh, they don't have documents. Um, and people say, well, why do you do that? Well, in addition to it being a compassionate thing to do, the economics are very simple. If we don't treat people who are out in the community who maybe don't have their documentation, uh, they often end up in an H in the ER and uh, are treated at a much more expensive rate than they are in a facility like ours. So we've really worked hard to make sure we have made access to care available so everyone in the community that needs it.
0: So what are your future plans for the organization or for the future plans for yourself in your career? Well, I'm I'm so delighted to continue to
1: be this organization's leader and the opportunities to 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 do more continue to abound even within with the spectre of uh, this legislation, we still have some programmatic opportunities in terms of uh, diabetes programs, nutrition programs, teaching uh, opportunities to teach the teaching community about better health. Um, so I'm very optimistic. Uh, whatever happens with the legislation, we're going to continue to be here. We We were here before the ACA. We've been here for 45 years across the country. So we're gonna continue to figure out how we build connections, how we leverage, and how we improve the outcomes, the health outcomes of the community. We do a lot of dental care. When we opened our health center right up the road here at San Leandro, there hadn't been that capacity for dental care in that area for years. My dental director tells me of the large amounts of bad pathology that came in that was untreated. That's symbolic. To what happens in the community and we don't they don't have access to care. The the pathology, the, the conditions, the dis the the chronic diseases only get worse. So when we proactively treat those, we reduce costs for the community at large.
0: And uh, so now we have let's about ten more minutes for the interview. I want to ask you just a series of questions, uh, and you can answer it uh, in a brief maybe thirty seconds or a minute. Sure. But uh Um, So, for example, one of them is, uh, how do you continue learning and improving your skill sets given that there's many struggles to be a CEO and you're always encountering new situations uh, that are unexpected or based on law or just something happens that you weren't prepared for? All
1: of the above. (laughs) Situations come at you, you keep your ears and eyes open, but you, you remain a learner. And a listener, and I think that's important. You can be informed by your environment that helps you clearly hear what's going on, and perhaps react to what's going. On. Certainly, hopefully, react to what's going on and make change.
0: So, how do you how do you personally main, stay a learner in your as your role or in your organization or throughout your whole career? How have you been a learner? You know, I I, I like to learn from other
1: people. Um, I, You really don't bring the ideas to the table by yourself as a CEO. That's that's ridiculous Um, to think that you could do that on yourself. I've got a team of five, and we're adding a new medical chief medical officer. They bring lots of ideas, and as as do the the quote middle management team that we have. Lots of great ideas throughout the organization. Often, will just will will really will come. They're laying there to be cultivated.
0: And uh, so how important is it to network or what's your take on networking? You
1: really have to network.
0: Um, I was in a
1: cab with a gentleman in D.C. whose uh, future fiance just opened a dental practice and she was struggling with clients. And he said, give me what you do. Do you have any suggestions? I said, you know what, I would I would suggest she go to the chamber events and her low, the Chamber of Commerce, I was on the board of Chamber of Commerce here, and I learned something about the Chamber. Good Chambers um, really know what's going on. They know who the business folk are in town. And you can do a lot of good, solid networking at a Chamber event, passing out. I know it sounds hokey, but passing out cards, participating, meeting, knowing who owns the print shop, who owns the UPS franchise, uh, who owns the local bakery. I mean, those are very valuable relationships. Um, and then of course, you know, if you're, if you're a member of your national association states, get involved. Um, there's really no greater place. I absolutely have learned so much from being involved in my state association, the California Primary Care Association, CPCA. I'm on the board, I'm on the executive committee. Over the past four years, I've learned, wow, what a great resource all of these colleagues are. Networking is the fun part. Get to know your mayor. They may sound intimidating, Um, but you can do it if you're in a small, small town, it's probably a lot easier if you're in a larger town, get to know your city council member, make municipal connections. The, the, the town that you live in and the people that influence policy in your town, um, oftentimes are very smart, influential people. You might even want to become, if you're a younger person, you might want to become, be mentored by a city council member or by an assistant city manager. Some of these folks have tremendous um, backgrounds and are very skilled in, 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 in business. You know, it, it, it's not intuitive to think people who run cities or public entities are, but they can be very influential. I would suggest talking to, um, you know, uh, your your local chamber president and finding out where the, the the spots where you could fit in might be. They likely have great ideas.
0: And, uh, for people who are also maybe earlier in their career and uh, maybe also even the same level of career as you, but uh, whether you're networking or whether you're in uh, the organization, how important is it to present yourself in a particular way? Um, and are you actively learning how to have an executive presence or are you constantly practicing your uh, public um, presentation always. skills, or
1: always. I mean, I, I you know, sometimes you get yourself into things, and you're like, "Why did I sign up for that? Why did I uh, agree to do that presentation?" Chal- you know, challenge yourself. Um, it, it's it, it's all free. I like to call it. In many cases, it's all free education. When you volunteer uh, or or uh, agree to to chair a committee or agree to participate in, um, you know, a, a, a focus group or some, some area that's not, that's not the right term, but move into an area that's uncomfortable for you. Think about it as, as, as free education. There's some real key things you can learn by simply volunteering. I also suggest that being on a board for a nonprofit is uh, a very key experience. Learning how to, um, to Manage a nonprofit is certainly um, a, a skill in itself, but when you're on the board, you can learn a great deal about interacting with the CEO um, and uh, you know the, the finances of an organization. I suggest that for people.
0: Okay, so so my question is another question is from your experience, like what makes a good CEO, and are there skill sets that would make a good CEO that someone who's just starting out in their career, could learn so that they could develop into a good CEO?
1: Well, as you're asking that question, what if you set about being a CEO in the same way that someone sets out to be a physician or a dentist or an architect? CEO has a funny title. I don't know if Enron did that or Fortune 500. You know, if you want to use the title executive director, um, whatever works for you, but if you think you want to lead at that level, then pursue it just as if you would pursue being accomplished in, in any other career field. Uh, it doesn't, it can happen by accident, but at some point I made a decision I wanted to do this. So it didn't, I didn't just fall into it. I, I had a trajectory and a strategy. And I think that's important to think about it in that context.
0: And uh, how do you describe yourself as a leader and how do you define leadership? Those are those are
1: really great questions. I would like to think think I just heard a little talk about servant leadership. I feel like after all these years, um, you know, I feel like I've been in a few gunfights and a few notches on my belt. But but I, I would prefer now to serve the, the team members that I have that are doing the hard work. Uh, my executive team. And so I feel like I would characterize leadership as best described as being a servant to others and uh, being compassionate and and uh, supporting those who are, are are coming along, but also those who are really doing the work.
0: And so what do you think is the best investment you've made in yourself to further your career?
1: I, I definitely need education. Um, I tell... You know, I meet lots of people who haven't finished their degree studies and they're frustrated about it. And I think if you want to to be in a role like this, you probably could do it without the necessary degrees. But I don't feel like I have wanted anybody to be able to tell me no, because I didn't have something that I needed. So education. And then I think um, putting yourself into s- situations where you're you're. Maybe you're a little uncomfortable, uh, has an a net a net benefit. You, you you come out of it having learned something, and those are skills you can use later on.
0: And, um what advice would you give to yourself ten years ago or when you were just starting out?
1: Um I would not have taken that uh, that abuse that I took early on. Sorry, as you can see, still so, still so have a few nicks from that, right? <laughs> I would have I would have approached that differently, um, but there not much else I would have changed because I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I that I would, that I had been given um, along the way here. To me, they were very strategic and they were they were a blessing, and I I'm happy with them. I would I would have done this. I've done things pretty much the same way. My personal life, a little different story. Professionally, yeah.
0: Okay. And um, so on your professional journey, uh, journey, um, you can't always do it alone. So are there any people, companies or professional groups that you felt were instrumental to your success and that you'd like to thank?
1: I would love to thank. There's so many people uh, all the way back from my, my friends at the brokerage firm to the gentleman I mentioned earlier to the people at, at DuPont. Uh, so many. it'd be unfair to name them all. Uh, but, you know, I, I had great support from an ex wife um, back in, in the early days, um, great support from my children, So, and, and really great support from a, my current board of directors. And uh, all of my board of, boards of directors have been wonderful people that have been very, very supportive. So, tremendous support all, all along the way.
0: And the mission of the Javier Marquecho podcast is to share stories of uh, other thought leaders. So are there any, um, people in the industry or in any industry that you would like to learn from or who you'd like to see as a guest on the show? Oh, I have,
1: that's a really great question. Uh, there are some people, there's a gentleman, uh, who's retiring out of San Francisco named John, uh, John Gressman. And John is, uh fantastic individual who's done so much in this space. Uh, he be, he's a real inspiration. Um, I think a lot of, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of some of the traditional CEOs, but uh, Tom Van Coverden, who is the CEO of the National Association of Community Health Centers is a fantastic influence as is Carmela Castellana Garcia, who is the, the CEO for the state association. But locally, I have a set of colleagues Uh, uh, Marty Lynch Jane Garcia Sherry Hirota Ralph Silber uh, Marty Wakazoo Zetty Page these are all colleagues who are unbelievably committed Sue Sue Compton folks who are very dedicated to community health who I've learned a lot from if I left any of you out please forgive me
0: okay yeah I'll I'll see if I can reach out to them or if you want to share your show this episode with them um, they'll hear the (laughs) I plan to okay (laughs) So if anyone wants to reach out to you, how can they do that?
1: Please do at dvliet.tvhc.org, D-V-L-I-E-T at dvliet.tvhc.org.
0: And so once again, this is David B. Vleet. He's a BHA MBA and he's the current CEO of Tibercio Vasquez Health Center Incorporated. Um, In today's episode, you had a chance to learn about his experience in practice management and health service administration, and I hope you're inspired by hearing his story and uh, have questions that you can either reach out to him um, to continue the conversation. Uh, If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to the Javier Morquecho podcast in iTunes and Google Play, or join our email list to stay connected. Please like and share this episode to spread the word. And finally, we're here to continue the conversation. Uh, and we want to continue discussing topics that are important to you. So all questions and comments are welcome. Uh, please leave us a review and join the conversation. Uh, so thank you, David, for being here. And thank you.
1: You're a sharp young man. And thank you for making this uh, uh, project of yours very impressed. And um, uh, it's going it's to go far. You're, gonna, you're doing great work,
0: Javier. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you to everyone who's listening uh, for being a part of the Javier Marquecho podcast. See you all next time. All right. Take care.